convicting, isn't it? Christians, uh, for the most part, nobody knows what we're for, but they're very clear what we're against. And uh, kind of this whole series, we're trying to figure out what we're for, what we're about. And uh, you can tell I have a more manly voice today than usual. I've got lots of rags up here I will try to mute before I share uh, with you guys. Um, We're going to pray that we make it through this. On Dayquil, got a little bit of of feedback. You can take me down just a little bit. I'm on Dayquil and something else I don't even know, so I feel good. No, it's not that bad. Um, What? Timmy and I together got half a voice. Timmy's is less than mine, so, so yeah, all right. Uh, <clears throat> Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were on a camping trip. In the middle of the night, Holmes nudges Watson awake, and he says, Hey, Watson, look at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson says, I see millions of stars, my dear Holmes. And, what, and Holmes says, What do you did infer from these stars? Well, a number of things, Watson says, lighting his pipe. Astronomically, I observe there are millions of galaxies, billions of stars and planets. Chronologically, I deduce the time is approximately quarter past three. Meteorologi- meteorologically, I expect the weather will be fine and clear. Theologically, I see that God is all-powerful and that man, his creation, is small and insignificant. What about you, Holmes? Watson, you fool, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> now... Sometimes we try to impress people with who we are. And when we try to impress people, we miss the obvious about who we are. We're in a series about this called The Truth About You. Um, We looked last week at how the truth about you is that you don't know the truth about you because you and I are so good at deceiving ourselves. And part of the problem is we hear this, we hear, man, I know a lot of people that that are not self-aware. They are non-self-aware people, other people, right? Not any of us are non-self-aware. We know lots of other people. And and by definition, if if no one thinks lack of self-awareness is their problem, you know, that that means that they have the the sickness. If they knew that self-awareness was a problem, they would be self-aware. That brings us to a uh, really good question that we're going to be asking today and that I'm going to leave you with today. Who is going to tell you the truth about you? If we are self-deceived, we need somebody to speak into our lives and tell us the truth about us. We're going to talk about that. And that brings me to a great story in the Bible. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. You can follow along on your listening guides on the screen. If you've got your smartphone, you can go to version and you can follow along there. John told me that I should do that at the, the appropriate time during the songs, because that would work. Ha! But it didn't work in the, small, in, the, in the quiet song, so I don't know. All right, Matthew chapter 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going to, up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man. Um, and, and I saw this the other day, this real quick, Jesus didn't refer to himself as the son of God, because at that time, everyone referred to themselves as sons of God, daughters of God, everybody just, um, so 
When Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's actually going back to the book of Daniel. And this is a messianic title. This is a stronger title than if, than if Jesus had said the word son of God, because nobody in that culture at that time called themselves the son of God. He called himself the son of man who was the prophetic Messiah. So when Jesus says the son of man, he's talking about himself. This is a huge indication that Jesus believed and he taught that he was the son of God. So here we go. The son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. All right. Got that? Mocked, flogged, crucified. The mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. So Jesus tells his disciples, I'm about to die. Immediately after Jesus says he's going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, flogged, and crucified, the sons of Zebedee, their mom says, hey, Jesus, can I ask a favor? And this may be really good timing because if you're about to die, I'm going to get this in right before, you know, the post office closes. Jesus, my boys here, Jimmy and Johnny, before you're martyred and humiliated in the ultimate self-sacrifice, could you give my boys a promotion? In your kingdom, could they be disciple number one and disciple number two? And I'm sorry, I couldn't read this without thinking about the cat in the hat and thing one and thing two, so I'm going to refer to them as thing one and thing two. Could my boys be thing one and thing two in your kingdom? Now, you need to know, three times in the book of Matthew, Three times in um, the book of Mark, Jesus talks about that he's going to suffer. He's going to give himself um, for, for the... Dude, you've got to take some bass down because it's killing me. Um, just take the bass out of my channel. If Keith's back there, see if Keith will come back there because there's something going on that hasn't been going on before. This is going to be good. Y'all going to lose that, but that might help. Nope, didn't do anything. Uh, So three times Jesus says, I'm going to give myself away. And immediately after each of those times, his disciples start arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, I'm going to show how old I am, but, but, you know, we used to argue, we used to have this, this team that was undefeated all the way through junior high. When we would come into town, we would start cheering, we're number one, we're number one. Well, the girls on the cheerleading squad had the dumbest cheer ever, and the, I, this is the way my mind works. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of this story, and, and the cheer goes, we're number one, can't be number two, because we're going to beat the whoopee out of you. <laughs> Who's heard that? You've heard that? All right, see, I'm not making it up. Dumbest cheer ever. What's whoopee, and why are we going to beat it out of you? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go there. <clears throat> but everybody wants to be number one. And Jesus is saying, no, guys, we got to suffer. We got we to give our lives as a ransom for others. Mom is talking to Jesus and the boys are standing right there. The boys don't have to ask Jesus because mom is going to do it for them. They can just stand there and look all sheepish and meek like we're only here because of mom. And mom can convince herself that this is pretty, this is, this is an act of motherly love because she's not asking anything for herself for heaven's sake. She's just looking out for her boys. It's a selfless act of well-being for her sons, right? She has a bumper sticker that she's going to put on the backside of her donkey that says, 
my boys are honor students at Jesus Discipleship Ministry School. Right? Because in the ancient world, in the ancient world, parents kind of um, fed their egos through the accomplishments of their children. It's a strange culture. I've never heard of anything like that. If you were parents try to live their lives through their children. <clears throat> you hadn't heard of that thing either? That's what's going on here. She kneels before Jesus. A posture of humility and surrender. And see, it's possible to deceive ourselves. That when we're in the midst of doing something that, that reeks of arrogance and, and um, self-aggrandizement, I can't even talk today. <clears throat> arrogance. <clears throat> that everybody else would recognize and say, that's arrogant. That's self-serving. We convince ourselves that we're being humble. That's the truth about us, is we're some dark human beings. And... Uh, That's what's going on with her. She is convincing herself that this is a humble act. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to kneel and ask that my boys can be thing one and thing two. Now, I want you to think about if Mrs. Zebedee goes to a small group that week. And the small group says, Mrs. Z, what you been doing? She goes, well, you know, I went down to hear Jesus talk. And he was, he was talking something about Jerusalem and blah, 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 blah. I don't know what he was saying, but because I had so much stuff on my mind and, and I just had to get it out. And so I knelt before Jesus and I said, Jesus, can you do something for my sons? And, and, and the small group, if they're a typical small group or Sunday school class. Now, this is, I grew up in a Baptist church. I've been a minister for 31 years, and this is, this is what's typical. If it's a typical class, they're going to say, Mrs. Z, you didn't ask for anything for yourself? No, just for my boys. And they're going to go, what a great mom you are. I hope your boys realize how lucky they are. Jesus must have been pleased with that request. Surely he said yes, because Jesus would love a mom like that, right? Now, there's somebody in the group who's thinking it but won't say it. They're going, who the heck does she think she is raising her kids up above these other kids? Or somebody's going, what did I think of that? Asking Jesus for that. You know, but in a typical small group or a typical Sunday school, nobody says those truths aloud. Churches sometimes refer to their small groups as growth groups. But if we don't tell each other the truth... If we, if we go along with all of these lies that we're trying to, to, to tell everybody else, we actually can make them growth prevention groups. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be a stumbling block for the people in our groups. <clears throat> Mrs. Z gets down on her knees and in her heart, she's all worked up, up about this humble thing that she's doing by, by kneeling and worshiping. Can my boys be number one and number two, thing one and thing two? And they all look at Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that Jesus, lover of children, Jesus, the one who came to seek and save that which was lost, the one who gave his life on the cross, he never wanted to disappoint people, right? He was real worried about what people thought about. And so he, he looked at her and he goes, that is such a noble request. You know, I'm, I'm, I can't make any promises, but I'm going to check with my father and I'll get back to you. That's what Jesus says, right? That's the way he, because he doesn't want to disappoint people, right? No, not hardly. Now, this is just the first part of the verse. Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Now, the phrase to them is very, very significant here. He's calling them all on the carpet. See, Mrs. Z intends for this to be a conversation just between her and Jesus. The boys, they're like, it's mom. What can we do? You know, we're, we're not really in control of mom. We're just here supporting mom. We're only here for her sake. Now, there's a writer by the name of R.D. Lang. I thought this was really interesting. He said, 
Family systems that protect self-deception and brokenness. Now get that in your mind. Family systems that protect self-deception and brokenness always have three rules. Here are the three rules. Rule number one, don't. Just don't. Don't what? I don't know. It's whatever they don't want you to do. In this case, it's don't you fail to achieve high because that's a family name. You've got to achieve. So in this case, don't, don't fail to achieve. Rule number 1A, 1A is rule number one does not exist. Rule number 1B is do not discuss the existence or non-existence of rules 1, 1A, or 1B. Because in families that protect self-deception and brokenness, if they don't talk about it, they assume it's not there. You see this level of self-deception? Let's just not talk about it. Don't, don't, no, 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 let's not talk about it. And they think it'll go away. Now, Jesus is always breaking these kind of rules. He always talks about it. Whatever it is, he's going to talk about it. And I, I thought, you know, it's really ironic that uh, religion is associated with rules and Jesus is associated with religion. But Jesus got in more trouble for breaking rules than he did for making rules. Now, if you read his life, he never broke one of his father's rules. He always, and in fact, it looked like he tried to do it on purpose, sometimes just to stir things up. He tried intentionally to break the Sabbath on the Sabbath, to break the Sabbath rules, not to break the Sabbath. Because the the scribes and the Pharisees had all 1,600 other rules that they added to the Bible. And Jesus was always getting in trouble for breaking their rules. So he responds to them, misses the inner boys, and he says, boys, don't you dare hide behind your mother. And mom, don't you hide behind your boys. Bill Hybels is one of my favorite pastors. Janie and I were, were up there in 1998 in Chicago at one of his church leadership conferences when we got the dream for starting a church like this. He talks about having the guts to tell the last 10%. The idea is that often in relationships, especially in churches or in Christian settings where we suffer from kind of terminal niceness, let that one sink in a minute, right? Terminal niceness. Um, We will address the difficult problem, but when we get right where we need the truth the most, we'll shy away from it. That's the last 10%. We we will do the easy 90%, but when it really comes down to it and we need to address something, we shrink away from the last 10%. So we'll say something like, you know, Um, that meeting didn't go very well. How do you think it went? Instead of saying, dude, you need to shut your trap, and and probably probably wouldn't say it like that, unless you're in my group with John and Joe, and then somebody might say that. Dude, you're talking too much. Shut up. But what we'll say is, man, that meeting didn't go well. What do you think? And we'll put it back on their plate, and we won't ever get to it. Where what we should say is, okay, my observation is there was a problem. My observation could be wrong but I think I need to say this. I think maybe you talked a little too much in that meeting. You didn't allow other people to have input or whatever the situation is. Does that make sense? The last 10% is the part that hurts. (laughs) And we may tell ourselves that we're doing it because we're being loving to the other people. You want to know why we really don't do the last 10%? It's because of fear. I'm afraid you won't like me. I'm afraid you'll get mad at me. I would rather not have to deal with all of the emotions and all the turmoil that goes with the last 10%. So I'll just leave the last 10% unset and we will have an unhealthy organization. See, the truth about me is I will never know the truth about me unless I have some friends who love me enough and who have enough courage to tell me the last 10%. That's what you need as well. 
And really, this is what the church was intended to be. It's why Paul said this to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Now, y'all have heard that for years. Speak the truth in love. Here's why, the next phrase. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. You want to know why many churches are stagnating and dying? It's right here in this verse. We're not speaking the truth in love, so we're not growing up in every way to be like Christ, to be more and more like Christ. If we don't speak the last 10%, we'll never, ever know the truth about ourselves, and we'll never, ever grow up more and more like Jesus Christ. Because Jesus speaks the truth. Jesus speaks the last 10%. We want to be a last 10% church, not to hurt people, but to help people grow. Now, I love this part. Verse 22, Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Now, if you have a pen and you've got those verses there, I want you to underline, you don't know. Three very important words when you're dealing with Jesus and Jesus asks you a question, you don't know, or you say, I don't know. You don't know. I'll come back to that in a second. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus is looking for any glimmer of self-awareness in James and John. He doesn't find any. So he starts by saying, you don't know about the cup. Now, let me explain the cup to you. The cup in the Bible is very often, it relates to the judgment of God that comes because of sin in the world. Jesus is about to take sin on head on. And and you remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times. He says, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup, what cup? The cup of suffering that he's about to go through to take on the sins of the world. Three times. He sweats drops of blood. He is is so um, emotionally wrapped up in this. And even though he's fully God and fully human, he is messed up because he's going to have to take on the sins of the world. And his father's going to turn his back on him. He says, this is the cup that I'm talking about. So he says to them, Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And and I'm interjecting this in here. This is what I think these words mean. Before you respond, let me give you a little clue about the correct answer. Here are three really important words. You don't know. You don't know about the cup. You don't know about the cost. You don't know about yourself. You don't know what motivates you. You don't know what's in your heart. You don't know what you're capable of. You don't know what God is up to. You're clueless. You don't know. Now, can you drink the cup? Heck yeah. Where is it? We'll drink it right now. And I picture Jesus. I picture Jesus going, okay. Because look what he says, verse 23. You will indeed drink from the bitter cup. Dude, Jesus ever asked you you can drink a cup? You just said, I don't know. You know, Lord. When Ezekiel was looking out at the the dry bones in the valley, and, and God says to him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel goes, Only you know, Lord. If God asks you about the cup, you say, only you know, Lord. Sure, we can drink it. But look what Jesus says. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Jesus is under the submission of his father. And even here, he's humble. And he goes, you're going to drink a cup. You want to drink a cup? You're going to drink it. But it's not my, my place to give who's on the right and who's on the left. It's not for me to give. So that's the scene with Mrs. Z and her boys. Now we get to the rest of the disciples. They find out about this. We don't know how they find out, but wouldn't you like to know how they found out? Because don't you know if you're James and John, this is a conversation that you don't want anyone else to know about. Mama says, I'm going to go do this. You're going, oh dear God. Or you're going, hey, that's kind of cool, but don't let anybody else know. And you go up to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, can we keep this between us? 
because you don't want your buddies to know. But as a general rule, it's really hard to achieve biblical community, authentic biblical community when we're keeping secrets. Can I just tell you another secret? It's really difficult to have an intimate marriage if you're keeping secrets. It's really hard to have authentic friendships if you're keeping secrets. It's hard to do business with people if you're keeping secrets. We don't know how they know, but however it happens, they find out. And we're going to see what happens. Verse 24. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, you notice it doesn't say what their mama had asked. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were capital T dash capital O. Ticked off. That's what indignant means. They were capital T, capital O. Were they mad at the mom? I don't think so. Who were they mad at? James and John. How dare they? And it's not because the other disciples are more noble. (laughs) I think it's because they went, dude, if thing one and thing two is gone, there's only thing three through 12. They didn't know Judas, you know, they knew he was going to be gone, but they didn't know. There's only three. It it reminded me of, of Survivor. We've watched Uh, seasons two through 20 of Survivor. And one of the things when you get down to the merge and everything, how many of y'all watch Survivor? We'll just move on. At the end of Survivor, they have these alliances. And one of the things they do is if it's like five and five, or let's say it's 11, so it's six and five, and there's this one person in the middle. There's five people over here strong, five people over here strong. And there's this one person who has the swing vote and they feel really, really important before that vote. Because if they go with this group, they've got certain chances. They go with this group, they got certain chances. And so what do they do is they'll go to them. They'll say, if you come over here, I'll guarantee you, you'll make the top three. Over here, they go, well, you know, you might make top five, but you're not going in higher than that. And that's one of the things these people do. They go, well, if I can go three, maybe I can get to one. And it's all about trying to win the million dollars. That's what I think is going on with the disciples here. They're ticked off because they don't know where their place is in the hierarchy. My girls are in gymnastics, and, and there have been times in lower levels. We're in higher levels now, so we have fewer girls in our level. But when we were in the lower levels, sometimes they'd have 25 or 30 girls that they would compete against, and we would count them. We would see all this. We'd go, oh, man, there's a lot. And my girls were like, you know, I really just want to make the podium, you know, first, second, or third. But what I really, really, I don't really care. I just don't want to be last. I think the disciples are going, dude, we just want to be on the podium. But whatever, we don't want to be 13th or 12th. Jesus had 12 disciples. This is interesting. He had 12 disciples, but three of them were on the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. And the gospels are really clear about this. Those three are the only ones who go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' clothes glow white, as bright as the sun. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. Peter, James, and John, they're the only three of the 12 disciples who got to go see that. Wouldn't you you think that's pretty cool? If you're one of the 12, wouldn't you want to be in the three? Man, I'd want to do that. When, when Jesus went to Jairus' house, Jairus' daughter died. Jesus only takes Peter, James, and John to witness his raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. That's pretty cool. And then, then at the end of his life, when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be betrayed, Jesus tells the rest of the 12, he says, stay behind. And this is what he says. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. They see things with Jesus that other disciples don't get to see. And that's kind of strange, don't you think? Because Jesus is adamant that every person matters to God. Every person is just as valuable before God. So that same God, why did he deliberately take three into the inner circle and leave some disciples feeling on the outside? 
while three felt like, hey, we're, we're it. I'm not going to give you that answer just yet. Look what happens when the others get mad. <clears throat> Verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be, first be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. <laughs> That's a great recruiting speech, isn't it? Hey, you, you want to be big here, you got to serve. Go clean the toilet. Any volunteers? Right? I got one. Cool. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave for even the son of man. This is awesome. Even the son of man. There it is again. He's claiming to be God. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this is what I love about Jesus. He never skips the 10%. He never allows a destructive hidden agenda to go unnamed, to remain in secret. So he calls all the disciples together and he says, hey, let's talk about this. Now, it's really interesting to me what he doesn't say. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know what, guys, I've been spending too much time with Peter, James, and John. I can see how that would look like. They're my favorites. I've hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. From now on, I'm going to divide my time up into 12 equal segments. You guys can keep score and make sure that I don't give too much time to one person or another. Now, if you're a parent and you try to do that, my mom used to divide down to the penny how much she spent on each of her children and then on the grandchildren. That's exhausting. And of course, being the baby of the family, I'm like, mom, I don't care if you spend more on me. It's okay. I won't tell, right? It's exhausting. But Jesus doesn't do that. He became real flesh and blood person. And of course, there's no way he could divide up his time equally where he could spend equal amounts of time with the whole human race. He doesn't even try. So there's these different circles. We know that Jesus taught and fed 5,000 at one point. There's another time where he taught and fed 4,000. We know in the book of Luke that there were 72 disciples and Jesus anoints them and sends them out to carry out his mission. Then we know there were 12 and then we know there are three on the inside. People's feelings about being on the inside or the outside, people's feelings of superiority or inferiority did not determine what Jesus did with his time. Anytime people had attitudes, Jesus is going to call it out. He's going to talk about it and he's going to say, you need to die to it. You need to be humble. You need to be a servant. And I tell you this because, because sometimes people say, well, you know, I would be healthier if all of my relationships were super healthy people, right? Now, now in, in a sense, that's true, but here's the problem with this. If all the people in your relational world were super healthy and wanted to restrict their relationships to other super healthy people, what would happen to you? you get kicked out of that little group, right? I would. I'd be meeting by myself tomorrow. If, if I wanted, if my, if Joe and John only wanted super healthy people in their relationship, I'd get kicked out. If our church had a goal of, well, we want all, un, all the unhealthy people to go away, and this is the goal of a lot of churches. If we wanted all of the unhealthy people to go away and only healthy people remain, how many of you are going to be sitting here today? If only the healthy people get to stay. Jesus didn't come to build a church like that. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And and, and I'm not saying that we should stay messed up. But I wear it like a badge of honor when we say that messed up people come to new life. Because I believe Jesus Christ hung out with messed up people. Some of you may not want to hang out with me this week because I want to hang out with messed up people. 
Last week, a bunch of you, in fact, the vast majority of you said on the back of your card, you said, I want to know the truth about me. If that's true, I got another question for you today. If you really meant that you want to know the truth about you, then the question for today is this. Who have you asked to speak the truth into your life? If we all have blind spots, and the only way we're going to confront those blind spots is to have someone speak the truth to us, then who is speaking the truth to you? If you lead any type of group here, we don't want to be um, growth-inhibiting groups, growth prevention groups. We want to be growth groups. And the only way to do that is to learn to speak the truth in love. And by the way, let me just, let me give you this. Peter, James, and John, even though they were the inner circle, they were not a picnic for Jesus. People who think about Peter, he was kind of rough. He was impulsive, always sticking his foot in his mouth, always getting in trouble. But people think John, they think John was just this mellow, beloved guy. Not so much. Jesus gives Simon the name Peter, Petros, Rock, He only gives two other of his disciples nicknames. We're told that when he calls James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he calls them the sons of thunder. What kind of personality do you have to have to be called the sons of thunder? He didn't call them the wallflowers. Oh, that's the wallflower boys. You got to work to know what's on their mind. No, he called them sons of thunder. John always wanted to be number one. Let me give you an example real quickly. Luke chapter nine says an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. They had this problem all the time. This wasn't a one-time deal. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and he explains to them. He says, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. John's direct response is this. Master, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus is going, dudes, the least will be the greatest. And John's going, speaking of the greatest, there's some dude out here and he's not part of our group and he's casting demons out. And we said, God forbid that someone should have a demon cast out. You know, the oppressive things should be gone and they should be healed because you're not one of us. And we know Jesus, you like our little group better than you like any other group and he's not of us. We couldn't stop him, so you got to stop him. Sounds like a lot of churches I served in. God forbid that, that God's bigger than our little group here. And he should use some other church to bring someone into the kingdom of God. God forbid that that should happen. You realize we're not in competition with other churches? Do you realize that? I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about other churches. I want to talk about how we can be the church that God created us to be. Because newsflash, God didn't call New Life to be Norwood. But he didn't call Norwood to be New Life either. I'm just saying that because they're the closest one, right? We have a thumbprint that we're supposed to, God gets to decide what kind of church we are. And we need to be that wholeheartedly and not worry. We need to celebrate when somebody gets baptized or somebody gives their life to Christ. Somebody comes through Celebrate Recovery and, and they recover from drug addiction, alcohol addiction, pornography addiction. We need to celebrate that when marriages are put back together. It doesn't matter Because Jesus says, dudes, don't stop them. Because if they're not against us, they're for us. Jesus said that to them. Stop them. Why would I do that? They're on our team. So he's going, guys, the the circle is, is much larger than this 12 that we have right here. The very next verse after Jesus says, whoever's not against us is for us. Very next verse. They're walking through this Samaritan village. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. 
And as they're walking through, now, if you know anything about the Samaritans, they hated Israelites. Israelites hated them because they were this crossbreed and they didn't worship the true God and all this stuff. So they go into the village and because Jesus is going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans said, not in here. You can't come here. Go away, go away. And the very next verse after Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. The disciples, James and John saw this, that the Samaritan village had rejected them. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Sons of thunder. Ha ha. They need a, you know, they need a sign. Sons of thunder. We're better than them. So God, we should destroy them because how dare they reject you and us? Jesus turns and he rebukes them. Who? The sons of thunder. He rebukes them. There won't won't be any fire calling today. We're not going to turn them into ash in a flash. Sons of thunder. And how long do you think this unhealthy, I've got to be better than you, we've got to be better than everyone, how long do you think this went on, this attitude with James and John and Peter? Because this is amazing to me. Even after Jesus died, John chapter 20, so Peter and the other disciple, now John always talked about himself, the other disciple. He'd say the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb because Mary had come back and said, hey, dudes, the tomb's empty. And so they get up and, and they run. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Even on Easter Sunday morning, they're having a race. I think John's going, come on, old dude. What you got? There's this competition. Who's the fastest disciple? And it's John. And by the way, this story of the race is only included in one gospel in the New Testament. I bet you can guess which gospel it is. The book of John. Who wrote John? John. I win. I'm faster than Peter, the rock dude. And I think they got there. I think that, I think that John, you know, he's puffed over. He's been over. He's puffing. <sighs> I beat you. And then if, you, if we get to heaven, we get to talk to him about it, Peter's going to go, but I went in first. I walked in, the angel said, Christ is risen, risen indeed. And John's going, yeah, I know, but I won. <laughs> I was first. I'm going to write it in my book. We're going we're gonna to put it in the Bible. So everybody will know, I beat you. Unstinking believable. Now, eventually they'll learn. Because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And all the stuff that Jesus taught them begins to take root and they begin to grow and they begin to suffer. And one day King Herod had James, one of the sons of thunder, killed with a sword. And I wonder as he's being led to his death, if James flashed back to this time that he and his mom and his brother knelt before Jesus and asked to be first because he got to be first at something. He was the first one killed for being a follower of Jesus Christ. John is the last one of Jesus' disciples. He's exiled to a place called Patmos, an island called Patmos. And if you ever read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all he can seem to talk about is love. Something happened between this. I've got to be first, and I'm going to write it in the scriptures to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is we've got to have more love. God is love. And if anyone is of God, he is born of God, and, and he knows God, and he loves God, and love is obeying God. And that's all he talked about. Something happened. And, and I think somebody told him the truth about him. And it transformed him. The truth about you is you will never know the truth about you unless you have some brothers and sisters who will tell you the truth about you. If you never know the truth, you will never grow up into him who is the head of the church, Christ Jesus the Lord. I think you want that no matter 
no matter how old you are, I think you want to be like Jesus. Because we're going to stand before him someday and give an account of our lives. The scary part is it says every careless word. We'll have to give an account for that. I've said some careless words. Now, let's finish this up. How do you tell people the last 10%? Well, first, you don't wait until you can do it perfectly. If you wait until you can do it perfectly, you'll never do it. So we just got to imperfectly, we got to start doing it. Now, the last 10% doesn't mean you erupt all over somebody because if you erupt, if you feel like erupting, here's your sign. Don't, don't, don't go erupt over them because that's not going to do any good. And don't tell somebody, now I'm about to tell you the last 10%. Because that's just going to cause a fight. You come up to me and you tell me, I'm going to say, let's just duke it out. Come on. You wait until God gives you the right time to do that. You don't do it when you're in a hurry. You don't do it when you're under stress. You don't do it in a group of people. If you love somebody, you'll take them them to the side one-on-one. And you'll say, this is really important. And I may say it wrong. And if I do, let me, let me say it again. But I value our friendship so much that I don't want any distance to come between us. And this thing happened. And here's how I felt. And I can't keep that in and have you be one of my closest friends. How would you respond if somebody came to you like that? Differently than if somebody says, tapping you, I'm going to tell you the last 10%, get your butt over here. Right? Somebody's coming for a fighter. They're coming packing heat or something. Now, where do, you, where do you get the grace to receive the truth about you? Because this is not an easy thing to do. And it's the same place we get the power to do anything, at the cross of Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus came to give his life a ransom for me, to buy, back, buy me back from the darkness? He died on the cross to forgive all my sins, even the last 10% of my sins and the last 10% of your sins. So today the question is, who will you ask to tell you the truth about you? Maybe the person sitting right next to you, they may have been waiting years to tell you the truth, and this is a good day for them. Are you willing to go to another person and say, I, wanna, I want you to have an open door. I want you to be able to speak into my life because my life is not about me. It's about Jesus. I'm looking for any head nods. Anybody willing to do that? Because last week, a lot of you said, I want to know the truth about me. But now I'm saying, will you go to somebody that you love and trust? And will you allow them? And, and nobody's, nobody's volunteering. And I'm not saying we're going to film it yet. Maybe someday. We're, we're not at that level yet. Maybe someday we can film those things. I want you to take a moment right now and as best you can, I want you to tell God, God, with your help, I want to be open to the truth about me. And then I want you to consider praying this prayer. Jeff, put that last slide up there if you would. This comes from, from a psalm written by David. And there are times when, when I feel like I'm not close to the Lord that I pray this prayer. And so as we wrap up, I just want to give you a few seconds. And, and don't, I mean, you can read it. But if you mean it, pray it. Do you want to know the truth about you? If so, pray this prayer.
it's kind of scary to ask God to point out anything in me that offends him. And it's scary for me to go to some of my friends and say, hey, you have the right to point out anything in me that offends you. But holy cow, what kind of church could we be? If what people said about us was not that we're the old skating rink, not that what they said was that church is real. And they're humble enough to listen to what you have to say. Oh my gosh. I want to be in that church. Let's pray together. Father, I... I know that that this is a very difficult thing for us to think about, and there's some folks that are, some folks are saying, not a stinking chance, I'm letting anybody say anything to me. God, break their hearts. Because they're the only one that doesn't know that their hard heart is keeping them from significant relationships with you and with others. There's some people say, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. God, nudge them with your spirit so that they can be more mature next year than they are this year. So they'll quit replaying the same year over and over again. God, the saddest thing to me is when somebody's been a Christian for 50 years, but really they've only played the first year over and over 50 times. We need to grow up. And then, God, I think there's some people here that are really saying, I think it's time. I take the next step. God, affirm that in their hearts right now. So much pain, so much brokenness in this room. Redeem us all and make us look more like your son. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.